I think we were at the point in this narrative about my association with the Fox Film Company and director Roy Walsh. Well, something came about that prompted him to return to California. He wanted to be out here for some particular reason, decided to come back out here, still with the Fox Company, to do some picture. But by that time, I had decided that as long as I had got more or less established there, I would stay in New York. So I did. I should have said earlier that while we were working in the old Whitman Bennett studio up in Yonkers, Triangle Films, uh, J.N. Naughty was, uh, I believe, uh, manager or at a uh, position of importance in connection with the studio anyhow. So about the time that Walsh left Fox to come to California, Naughty was then studio manager with Famous Players. And having uh, become acquainted with me at the uh, Whitman Bennett Studios. It seems that they had an opening for a cameraman, so he got in touch with me. He wanted to know if I would like to come and work at Famous Players. So I decided, in as much as I was not doing anything at the time, that would be a very good company to be with. So I went to Famous Players, was introduced to a director named John Robertson, who I believe had been working with a cameraman by the name of Lyman Bruning. And Lyman had just been assigned to some picture with another director at the moment, so Robertson had no cameraman. And I was recommended to him, and we met and had a talk, and it resulted in my going with director Robertson, who was a charming gentleman. I enjoyed working with him, and uh, stayed with him quite a long time. Thinking back, it's, a, uh, it's quite possible that I would be a little inaccurate in the chronology of the thing here. You know, at the time, you just go along in your routine way, doing your, your uh, carrying out your assignments. You don't think you'd, at the time, you attach no particular importance to it, to it at least to the extent of making a notice to the time and the continuity and uh, all that. So thinking back a number of years, it's, it's a little difficult to get them all in their exact order, but roughly speaking, I would say that the first picture with famous players was one called, uh, let me see. Uh, Make Believe Wife, was it? That's right, Make Believe Wife, and Billy Burke starred in it, and it was directed by Robertson. I don't remember anything, any particular incident in connection with the picture to merit any further comment on it. Well, I, all the thing I remember was that she was very pleased because she said you were the first cameraman who made her look like a blonde and not a brunette. Oh. And that she was very pleased. Well, I'd even that. forgotten that. I'll, I'll applaud myself for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was followed also with a picture by Billy Burke called uh, The Misleading Widow. Then I think there was still another Billy Burke picture, Sadie Love. Yeah. That was also directed by Robertson. Away goes Prudence. Was that in there too? Yeah. All right. Well, shortly after that, or about that time, anyhow, along about 1920, I, I think, uh, they decided to do Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with John Barrymore, who was a natural for that particular part. This was also a Robertson picture, and I was to photograph it. Uh, John Barrymore appeared on the scene, and we were introduced, and he was charming. And he had a great understanding, and he was uh, uh, 
so cooperative with the, with the cameraman. Uh, he didn't want to be lighted up like a handsome leading man at all times. Uh, I remember his saying to me, now Roy, when we get to the doctor, uh, to the uh, Hyde sequence, Mr. Hyde sequence, he said, don't uh, try to make me look hideous. Let me disappear into the shadows. Let them see my back part of the attire. Let me make the lighting more catch as catch can, which was an ideal assignment as far as the cameraman's concerned. And he said, what well, I'm as Dr. Jekyll. Then if you feel like it, you can polish me up a bit and display my best features and so forth. So that made it quite interesting from the cameraman's point of view. And it was a, a very interesting picture to make. Nita Naldi was also on that picture. And um, Martha Mansfield was in that, and she was a had been a Follies girl, a very beautiful, very lovely, charming girl. Oh yes, you talk Martha about Mansfield that. Martha Mansfield played uh, Dr. Jekyll's uh, sweetheart. She was his sweetheart in the in the picture. And later, she met a very tragic death. She was, uh, had, was in a costume picture, and uh, her dress caught fire, and she was burned to death. But I do remember Martha Mansfield being... That's right. I'm glad you mentioned that. That had slipped my mind. That was a related incident that did occur there. So I don't believe there's anything further to mention about that particular picture, except it was an extremely interesting picture to make. And uh, I might say that Barrymore was under a great emotional strain then because he was also doing, at the time, quite a uh, strenuous uh, production on Broadway, legitimate stage. I think that it was The Jest, wasn't it? Do you remember? And doing The Jest at the same time as he did Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it really was quite a strain on an actor who really gave his all to both productions, you know. And, and as I as I remember it, shortly after Jekyll and Hyde, uh, Barrymore, who was felt the strain of it, even while we were doing the picture, in the end, seems to me that he had quite a nervous breakdown. And he was a well, as I said before, he was a delightful person to work with. Uh, after Jekyll and Hyde, uh, you think of anything there, George, that I might have omitted? No, I can't, Roy. As I said a moment ago, thinking back, it's hard to get all the relevant things, yes. and especially in the right order. Well, the it. next thing that, as I remember, after Jekyll and Hyde was the, um, uh, shortly after that, was the trip to Chicago with Alice Brady and Robertson. Oh, that reminds me of something I did want to say. Uh, when I first went to Famous Players, I had no assistant cameraman, and I had to have one. And I met George Falsey who was connected with famous players, but at that time not in the photographic department. And we got acquainted, and I liked George, and we seemed to be congenial. And uh, he told me that he would like so much to get a pho photographic end of it, rather than the uh, office end of it, which I believe he was connected with as near as I remember. So uh, with a little uh, promotion there, we managed to arrange things so that George was transferred into the photographic department, and uh, uh, I was lucky enough to have him with me. And uh, so shortly after George came with me, it was decided to make a location picture in Chicago with Alice Brady, and I think the name of that was The Dark Lantern. That was also directed by Robertson, and George Falsey and myself went to Chicago and we were there several months because I think that picture was followed by another one or two. Mm -hmm. 
And George was very much interested in, in uh, photography and picked it up rapidly and was a great help in every way connected with it. And of course, later on, as we all know, George has become one of the very top cameramen. Was it while you were in Chicago, Roy, that there was a power failure? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Long about Easter time, we were, the company, we were, we were all living at the Edgewater Beach Hotel. And long about Easter time, there was a very severe blizzard, one of the worst they'd had. And the power was uh, interfered with. In fact, all the electrical service to the hotel was, was out of commission, which meant that the elevators didn't run and there were no lights, no heat. Uh, but the result of all that was quite a picturesque scene. The huge dining room was entirely lighted with candles, which the management had foreseen might be, necess be necessary sometime. And it made almost a fairyland tableau with all these thousands of candles, I presume, lighted all over the dining room. And when the guests retired for the night, they walked up the stairs, and as much as the elevators were not running, carrying candles. Yeah. It was really uh, something unusual to see. And the, the blizzard was really terrific. Oh, Reginald Denny was also in the yes. Dark Lantern. He played, uh, played in that. And, mm -hmm. and Alice Brady's husband, who was James Crane. Oh, Jimmy yes. Crane. And didn't you have a bet with James Crane about uh, you'd go into the lake oh, on Easter no, Sunday yes. even if the That's ice was right. there? What was there about that? I was still swimming. <laughs> well, we had a bet that no matter what the, uh, the uh, weather condition was on Easter, not Easter Sunday morning, but at a certain date, uh, around past that. Easter, around that time, that no matter what, what it was like, that we would, we would go swimming in the lake. And uh, I took him up. He said, I bet you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that, and I said, "Yes, I would. I'll bet you." And I'll bet you. So uh, we had this bet, and the day dawned on this particular day that we were supposed to go on the lake. And while it was uh, the weather was uh, sunshiny, the lake was still full of ice, big ice <laughs> flows of ice floating around in it. And uh, Jimmy backed out; he wouldn't go in, and uh, I went in, swam around a little bit, <laughs> dodging these big cakes of ice and got out, and I never remember being so cold in my oh, life. I, I, I had to get in the warm it. bath, and I just stayed there for about half the day, but oh, I, I did know. win my bet from Jimmy. Good. <laughs> you mentioned Alice Brady, and we've been discussing her, of course. Oh, yeah. I wonder if you'd go back and tell about uh, doing this doubling stunt for her before you had gotten to know her as well. Oh, yes, that's oh, interesting. Oh, yes, you well, remember? I don't remember what picture it was or exactly what the year was, but in any case, um, Alice Brady was to do a, a picture and one of the um, scenes in, in the uh, picture called on her. She was supposed to, I believe it was a hit-and-run affair. She was driving a very fast racing car, and she was supposed to have hit someone and then gone on and uh, straight down Fifth Avenue, New York, with a motorcycle cop chasing her. And... Um, she uh, wouldn't stop for anything and went straight on down till they finally caught up with her and, and uh, stopped her. Well, Alice Brady didn't drive, and uh, those scenes were usually had a double. So anyhow, they, uh, the assistant director, I had been driving cars, another thing I did, which not too badly. Uh, I loved cars and loved driving cars of all kinds. So the assistant director of the film I had um, driven a car once before in a film that he was connected with, 
And so when the thing, the idea came up of having a double drive the car for Alice Brady. She didn't drive, I presume. Alice didn't drive. Uh, um, he thought of me. So he um, got in touch with me and asked me if I'd do this scene. And I said, well, I don't know. It sounds a little bit risky. He said, oh, no, there's no risk connected with it. But it's, he said, I know you can do it. And it's, I would love any sort of thing that... Mm. Called for a little extra heroism, you know, yeah. spotlight. <laughs> so um, I said that I would do it. Well, he said, I'll speak to Miss Brady about it and see if it's all right with her. And so he told her that he had a double. So she asked quite a number of questions about me and uh, if I was tall or short and dark and fair and would I be a good double for her and so forth. And they convinced her that it was all right. Well, I uh, reported for work in the scene one particular morning. And uh, I found the car. I'd never seen it before. It was a, called an American Underslung racing type. It was something <laughs> like the Stutz Bearcat. That was the. I believe it had four speeds. It had it? four speeds. And, and the gear the shift was on the outside the of the. Gear shift was on the outside of of the car. Now I was a very small person, and, and in those days I only weighed about 100 pounds, I guess, two or three pounds, and uh, short, about five feet two. And this was a, a big car, so they had to. Uh, have cushions and something. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, just get in and drive it around the block and, and uh, familiarize yourself with it. And the man who had, had been driving it, he showed me where the gears were entirely different from the car that I was oh, yeah. driving at the time. And they were first, second, third, and fourth and all that. So um, I got in it and the, that that anticipation of driving this car, I'd always wanted to drive down to the avenue <laughs> faster than Wide the wall out. <laughs> And that was great. But to top the whole thing, make just the cream on the frosting on the cake, was the fact that I was to wear Alice Brady's fabulous sable coat. Mm. And uh, that was just, I mean, I never hoped to ever have a sable around me. So when we got ready to do the picture, they brought the, uh, Alice Brady's maid. I remember she came and had this coat across her arm and bearing it do reverence. <laughs> and they put, I had to wear a hat, the same one that Alice was wearing in her scenes, and they fixed a little dark hair or something around it so that it didn't show, because I was only seen from the back and just a long shot of the side. And then I got into this beautiful sable coat and this, this old American underslung racing car, which was rather <laughs> incongruous side of that, you know, I mean, after all. But, <laughs> So I got in the car, and it was on Fifth Avenue, where we started this thing. It was on Fifth Avenue, I should say, in the 60s, because it was above 59th Street, yeah. well above, up near mm -hmm. Central Park, just on the, where Central Park is up in there. Now, the camera was mounted on a, a car behind, I think it was That a wasn't truck. me, I don't know who it the camera was. No, you will not know, you wouldn't have been able to crank <laughs> the thing. But, the cameraman was mounted, and they had this truck behind Mike, the car I was driving. Now, there was a motorcycle policeman who was later, well, there were later two, but it started out with one motorcycle policeman, catch me, and then about a block behind was this, um, or half a block behind, was this car with the camera crew on it. So when they gave the signal, oh, I, I want to say first of all that uh, they were able to get police cooperation to do this scene. 
And uh, in those days, they didn't have lights, the changing of red and green lights, mm. but a policeman stood in the middle of each, each intersection on Fifth That's Avenue right. down, you know, with a whistle, and they, they regulated traffic. traffic. Well, these policemen, all the way down Fifth Avenue, they, were, uh, no, they knew this thing was happening, and the idea was not to interfere with the north and south or whatever it mm. was, maybe east and west, but the up and down traffic. Yeah. They were not to interfere with that traffic. But they were merely, when, before this thing came, they blew the whistle and kept the traffic off from the side streets mm -hmm. so there wouldn't be any danger of anybody yeah. being hit. Well, the signal was given to go, and they said, well, we can only do this once. They won't let us retake it. Oh. Very important. And the thing you must remember is to speed it up, go fast. Mm. Don't don't <laughs> slow up, don't slow for anything, because this, this, we've got to, we can't... Make it effective. Make it effective, and it's got to be genuine and real. Mm and uh, just concentrate on your driving and go as fast as you like. So anyhow, I, the signal was given and I started off. I will admit I was trembling a little, I think, because it was yeah, just too much, and the sable coat was just, that was really Overpowering. Overpowering. Trembling and, in your sable coat. Oh, <laughs> yes. So, the, as I remember, the signal was given to start. And uh, we started off, and I started off fairly slowly, and. Uh, I could only look back just once when I started to be sure the camera car oh, was yeah. following me. They got yeah. started too. So for out about a block, we had everything checked and they were there and the motorcycle cop was ambling along behind me. So as I gathered speed, the motorcycle policeman gathered speed too, and I started off. Well, I got up speed and I crossed 59th Street probably. <laughs> 45, 50 miles an hour, and then I got down and I started going 50, 6, 55, 60. <laughs> I remember seeing 65 on the speedometer at one time, but I was looking. And I will say the policeman had the traffic regular, but this thing was, the traffic was still going north and south, so I well, had oh, to yes, dodge and course. weave in and out yes, that's of right. these things. And, of course, the camera crews, without these people knowing what was Why happening. Why, certainly. And uh, so... Uh, and I wove in and out and, and going as fast and, and going on down Fifth Avenue. And finally, we were supposed to, uh, the, then another motorcycle policeman came along, and I think there were two of them supposed to stop me, the pullover business, you know. Oh, yeah. But just before that happened, <laughs> there was one old man, I, a person, it may have been an old lady, but I think it was an old man, who... Um, Perhaps didn't hear the whistle. Didn't hear the whistle or just wasn't going to let anybody interfere with him, so... He stepped off the curb and crossed, it started to cross the street. And I swung around, I remember, and just, just missed him. In fact, I wasn't sure I had missed him at that yeah. point because this was a very low car and I couldn't see too well. I wasn't sitting up yeah. high in it, you know, in the racing car, looked through the windshield. So I almost thought that I had just clipped him as I went by. But then, at that point, then the policeman came up to pull over and I pulled over and that was the end of my biggest scene in films. <laughs> oh, really I still a, remember it. Really a thrill. I could almost visualize really that. It was. Was your husband waiting anxiously to hear how this had come out? <laughs> I don't think he knew too much about it. I don't think I told I, him too much I, about it. I don't it. believe I, think, I did as I remember it. I think Because no. I used to drive, quite often I drive cars doubling yeah, I know stars, you did. just for the fun of it, you know. And uh, so it was just another thing. I was just doubling. I don't think he knew afterwards because I don't think he would have let me do I knew there were, you were going to do something with a car, but I didn't know there was any particular uh, thrill or uh, 
risk connected well, with it. I didn't think much, much about, about it, really. In fact, as you say, I didn't know much about well, it. Well, I didn't either. Mm -hmm. I didn't either yeah. until, the, until we went to start off, and then he told me how fast I had to well, go. Well, did you later on see it in the, in the, in the picture? I never saw the, the you film. Didn't. No, I never, I, I never oh, saw it. Oh, we're still undecided as to the name of it, aren't we? Yeah. No. Well, I'll find that out. Oh, fine. Yeah. If you, no, when I you do, heard. I'd like to know, too. I'll let you know. <laughs> no, it no. is hard to think. You know, when you're doing... Uh, Oh, a picture every week for several years. The, the cumulative result is quite a number of pictures. Yes, it's it awfully is. difficult to to be accurate mm -hmm. in any one of them as to just when and so well, forth. Well, as I remember, the, the after the uh, after the Chicago picture, it seems to me then was the Elsie Ferguson footlights. Footlights. I think yes. that came along in there. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess Next it was. Yes. Now there were some competitive tests on this, weren't there, Roy? On the Elsie Ferguson? Ferguson? Oh, yes, they were. There were some, well, I'm not sure whether that was competitive test or not. I believe so. But in any event, whatever happened, I got the assignment. Mm -hmm. And it seems some of the other cameramen there had previously worked with Elsie Ferguson. They were all, oh, uh, trying to, uh, <laughs> well, they were all telling me how difficult she was to work with, and they were didn't envy me that assignment at all, and so forth and so forth. And I had never worked with her. I had met her, and she was told that I was to be her cameraman, and so forth. So I believe to start the picture, we made some preliminary tests just to decide out if the lighting was correct or could be improved upon, and so forth. And they were all right, but I wasn't too pleased with them. In fact, I felt that I could do better and was when we went into the projection room to see the rushes, I was a little bit prepared to apologize <laughs> to explain. But much to my uh, delight, she was entranced with the results. She reached over and grabbed my hand and said, Oh, Roy, they're just lovely. Just, oh, just don't do anything differently. That, I'm highly satisfied with them. So I felt very good. And our uh, whole association on the picture was very... Congenial, delightful. I found her charming to work with, no trouble in, in, in any respect at all. Elsie was a great champion of animals, wasn't she? Oh, very much so. I don't know that she belonged to a, any society like the... Uh, SPCA? Mm -hmm, or not. But anyhow, she had a genuine fondness for domestic animals, especially. And I remember one occasion coming in from um, a location on Long Island. I think we were in her own private car at this time with her own driver. doesn't matter anyhow. But anyhow, we passed a man on a bicycle who was sort of dragging a dog who had difficulty keeping up with the speed that this cyclist was going, and the dog was really uh, being very badly mistreated. Mm -hmm. And Elsie immediately stopped the car and leaped out and uh, after we got ahead of this man so we could stop him with the car. Then she went up to him and gave him the worst tongue lashing I've ever heard. She was just practically livid. And she said he had to carry that dog even if he had to walk with him. And she was going to stay behind him and see that he did. Or he was going to be in trouble with the Humane Society immediately. And the, the man was so taken aback and overawed by her uh, determination and uh, feeling about the matter that, that the dog was uh, properly cared for at least a little so we got back to town anyhow. But that's just a little example of her. She would uh, put herself out to champion uh, any animal or to uh, prevent any mistreatment if possible. 
she had a genuine feeling for animals. Roy, I have just at this moment discovered a note about the Barrymore film. I wonder if you'd go back and tell us about how you'd had a bout with pneumonia after Dr. Jekyll was Oh, yes. Well, for some reason or other, everybody connected to the picture seemed to feel a strain, and uh, I had the misfortune to come down with a serious case of uh, pneumonia right after the picture. And I was laid up for some little time. And uh, I was quite critically ill. Uh, there was one point where the doctor, who was a very good one too, was very doubtful as to my recovery from it. But anyhow, I did uh, recover. And I always remember how uh, uh, the fine treatment that, that I had from, and consideration I had from Famous Players Studio. Now, I was out, uh, I think, about two months. And during all of that time, every week they would send a special messenger down to where we lived in Yonkers at the time with check for full salary, or maybe just cash, I don't remember, but anyhow, full salary, no deductions, whatever. And this period, uh, when I was ill, also Christmas occurred during this time. And at Christmas time, in addition to the salary, they sent down an envelope with twenty, with $100 in gold in it and a very nice note about Thank me for past services and hoping I'd soon again be well and so forth. It's just charming. And when you're ill like that, those things uh, yeah. really give you a boost, you know. Then you went back to work, they sent you home. Oh, uh, <laughs> shortly after that, I did. Uh, when I started to recover, I made rapid headway, and all of a sudden I felt pretty good. So I just voluntarily went back to the studio, and they said, What are you doing here? Said, well, I said, I'm. Recover now and came back to uh, do whatever there is to do. Oh, no, no. You've had pneumonia. It takes longer than that to make a complete recovery from a serious case of pneumonia such as you had. You go back. We'll send for you when we think you're well enough to work. <laughs> now, check me, Roy, if I'm touring you too fast through no, your career all right. here. But it seems to me it was not so long after completing Footlights that you went abroad for the first of two pictures made in Europe. Was the first one the Spanish gym? I think you're quite right about that. As near as I remember it, it was shortly after that. And here's what happened. Oh, somewhere in before that, I believe we had done Sentimental Tommy. Uh, with Robertson. I believe so. Yes. And after that, it was decided to do... Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. And in connection with that, John Robertson was sent to Europe to consult with Sir James Barry relative to doing Peter Pan. And so he, he went over by himself and talked with Barry, and it was all everything was all arranged for. It was all set to do to do Peter Pan. So at that point, Robertson cabled the studio to send me over. I was still his cameraman. So I was sent to England, my first trip out of the country. And by the time I got there, the plans had been changed again. And it was decided for some reason or other, which I don't remember, not to do Peter Pan, at least at that time. But inasmuch as the director and his cameraman were both there, they decided to do something. I don't know how it came about, but they chose a picture the name, by the name of the Spanish Jade. Then it came a question of casting it properly. And after looking the field over, Robertson couldn't seem to find a leading lady that he was pleased with. Well, it looked like we were going to be in England for some time just then. So we uh, left, I think we were at the Savoy Hotel. 
Well, anyhow, we decided to take a service flat, I believe, because we were going to be there at least some months. And uh, we noticed a service flat for rent Sublet. by Melville Sublet by Melville Gideon. Melville Gideon was the pianist and a talented performer for a group of uh, entertainers in the theatrical business known as the Co-Optimists. Uh, it was a dull season, I believe, and these good performers were all on the loose and uh, had no engagements, and they all got together and decided to produce a thing themselves, which they called the Co-Optimists, in which each one did the thing he could do the best, whether it was sing, dance, monologue, or whatnot. Gideon was the pianist. So, in looking at this flat, which was for rent by Melville Gideon, which we, we did take, really, but when we went over there to look at it, his girlfriend was uh, visiting him. They were having dinner or something, or a party, or there were several guests, I don't just remember. But anyhow, her name was Evelyn Brent, or Evelyn Brent, whichever is the correct pronunciation. And I met Evelyn Brent, and we had some conversation and she seemed to be quite uh, familiar with all phases of picture work, and I was quite surprised. And I said, well, are you interested in picture work? She said, oh, yes, I've done quite a bit of it. So I said, well, now that's a coincidence. I said, the director I'm with is about to do a story called The Spanish Jade. And you could see she was the, the type for that part. And I as said, as far as... a matter of fact, let me just say here yeah. that they, the, the actress that they wanted to get very much was Alma Rubens. Oh, that's right. But that's right. she was in Hollywood. That's and right. They said they just couldn't wait. To, True. To, uh, to send for You're her. You're right. And so. So anyhow, they couldn't get who they wanted, so they were in search of someone. So I told Miss Brent that uh, if she was at all interested, I would speak to Mr. Robertson about it, and uh, if he hadn't by that time engaged someone else, they might might like to get together. It might, might result in something. So she was agreeable. I told John Robertson, and he seemed to be uh, grasping at a chance to get some possibilities, so he arranged an interview with uh, Miss Brent, and she got the uh, assignment as leading lady in the Spanish Jade, and was quite a hit in it, and I believe she, uh, that was followed by some uh, offer from Hollywood, when she came back over here and did a series of underworld parts. Mm -hmm. So we went to Spain for that picture and worked principally in a little old town called Carmona, wasn't it? And it was a very quaint and pleasing experience. And this was followed, I believe, by Love's Boomerang, in which you uh, trailed a circus around, didn't you? Yes. Was that uh, Love's Boomerang? Was that the name of that? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, I guess that's right, because Robertson also directed that. That's right, we finished Spanish Jade, and then it was decided that he'd do another picture while there, and that was a French circus story. And uh, to uh, do this picture, we took advantage of the fact that a little one-ring French circus at that time was traveling around called the Cirque Pindere. And we arranged and got permission to almost join the circus, you might say. At least we followed them around in our own outfit to all their one-night uh, in one day stands and all so forth. All down the coast of Normandy. Oh yes, all down the coast. It was a very... Started at Dieppe and went all the way to Le Havre. That's true. It was a very interesting experience because we got to see the uh, more uh, characteristic French smaller places which we, in touring, you wouldn't ordinarily see. And it was a very interesting and instructive and educational experience. Anne Forrest. Of course. And David Powell was the leading man. That's right. 
Now, we knew Ann Forrest previously, didn't we? From well, somewhere. I had known Ann Forrest from Santa Barbara. Oh, they yes. Know, the 80s when we were almost children That's together. Right. She came to town. We were both great swimmers. She was a great swimmer, too, and uh, we used to that's right. Lot. And at that time, her name was Ann Crowman. Oh, she yes. Well, she wasn't connected with the picture company. Oh, no, 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 no. She just came here to I see. live. And um, she, uh, her name then was Ann Crowman. Mm -hmm. And, of course, then later, she played in the Santa Barbara Motion Picture Company. In fact, she was playing with them, playing leads at the Santa Barbara Motion Picture Company when we were married and went east. Now, oh. that was still going on then. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't seen Anne. In fact, I didn't realize she changed her name to Anne Forrest. And, yeah. uh, they said we were getting Anne Forrest. didn't mean much no. to me. But um, she arrived in Calais or wherever it was, somewhere in France, and they said, well, the leading lady had arrived, and she was very tired, and, and uh, so she was in her room, and... Uh, so forth and so on. And then she came down into the lobby, and I was sitting there. And she took one look at me, and she said, Why, Marjorie Greenwell, for heaven's sake. And I said, Ann Croman. <laughs> she said, It's Ann Forrest now. But anyhow, we had a, quite a reunion and uh, met in, in France, the other side of the world. The That's last odd. time we'd seen each other was in Santa yeah. Barbara in yeah. California. Okay. And uh, so from then on, we were very good friends. Sure. Of course, she was, did the picture. With, well, I believe after Spanish Jade, then did we come back here? Did we come back we to... We came uh, back after the... Uh, Gee, this is really an involved continuity of incidents, <laughs> isn't it? But I think that's true. I think we did come, and come back. And just at that point, now, when you went to, uh, to England with Robertson the first time to do these two pictures, yeah. I think famous players had just moved into their beautiful new studios in Long Island City. Oh, yes. Well, in that case, Sentimental Tommy came later because it seems to me that Sentimental Tommy was done in the Long Island Studios, wasn't yes, it? Yes, well, then it must have been done after, yeah. after we came mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. Well, anyhow, that was quite a good picture. Gareth Hughes was in it, also May McAvoy, and it was a very picturesque and interesting, yes. interesting story. Quite a successful picture. Oh, let's see, what did happen? Then did the Barthelmas film start? Did you do Fury in there? That well, now that, no. the Fury, that's, uh, uh, there, Henry King came into the picture there. Well, how did I happen to leave famous well, players? Did, uh, seems to me you did Constance Benny pictures. Oh, sure I did. Running, right? running all through there, yes. Uh -huh. Oh, yes, well, somehow, let me see now. There was a, hmm, well, we, we mentioned Jekyll and Hyde, of course. Mm -hmm. And there was erstwhile Susan, that was Constance Benny. Yes. And wanted a husband. That was Billy Burke again. And uh, something, uh, the Dark Lantern. We mentioned that in Chicago. Alice Brady. The Magic Cup was Constance oh, Benny. Oh yes. Thirty-nine. And Away Goes Prudence. That was Billy Burke. I yes. didn't realize we'd made so many Billy Burke oh, pictures. Yes, and we, we we mentioned Sentimental Time. And there was called Little Italy with Alice Brady. Mm -hmm. Was that in the in Long Island? That Little Italy picture? Yes, it was. I think so. Mm-hmm. And there was 39 East. We mentioned that. That was Constance Benny. Yes. And let's see. Something Different. That also was Constance Benny, I believe. And the Magic Cup, Constance Benny. And let's see. We mentioned the Spanish bla Blade, uh, Spanish Jade, rather. There was something called uh, Love's... Uh, oh, what is the name of that now? No, we mentioned that. That was Love's Boomerang. That period is a little confused somehow. It, it, it is with me, too, because we started jumping around so much then. 
The man from home was one. And I know Hedda Hopper, you know, they call him this, too, the big Hedda Hopper. She played uh, in two or three of the films Who? that you made with Roberts. Oh, yes, Hedda Hopper. Well, we knew her here in Santa Barbara, didn't we, or not? No, no, we knew her no. in New York. She played with Robertson. Well, who was it whose wedding anniversary was the same date as ours when we had a joint dinner? Alice Brady. Was that in Chicago? Mm -hmm. Was her Yes, her wedding yeah. anniversary was the same day as ours. Hmm. And, uh, and somebody gave DeWolf us a... DeWolf Hopper was there. DeWolf Hopper, that's right. But that's before, uh, I think... Now, now we're going back a bit, oh, reminiscencing. But it just occurred to me in passing. Yes. Oh, yes, of course. Now you bring it all back to me. Now we have to go... Way, way all back right, again to the that. American Film right. Company when I was doing swimming scenes. All right. And this was just um, in 1916, about a month before Roy and I were married, and I was doing a, a doubling scene for Margarita Fisher again over in Santa Cruz Island, swimming uh, sequence. And on the island at the same time was a Fox Film Company with uh, William Farnham playing the lead, and Hedda Hopper, who was at that time Elder Furry. Oh, She yes. was his leading woman. That's right. And we all had a dinners together in the same place there. They had a, mm. an old shack, you know, regular, yeah. very rough, roughing it. And uh, I remember they used to play cards after, and I used to sit and write letters to my boyfriend, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyhow, they were there. They were at the same time they were there, and that was my first introduction. I remember Elda Furry. That's where you got acquainted where with Where I got acquainted with mm -hmm. her, and we used to spend some time together. And um, so then, it wasn't until much later on, in New York, making pictures with Robertson, oh, maybe 23 or long in there, I don't know, but in any mm. case, uh, she was acting at that time, and she... Uh, she was acting um, uh, parts and part with uh, with Robertson as a oh yeah just a minor part in, yeah. in the film. But at the time that she was uh, uh, Elder Furry in, in on Santa Cruz Island, yeah, she was married to DeWolf Hopper. Oh. And had just had uh, recently uh, the baby boy who was Billy Hopper was her son, and she was showing us all his pictures and mm. this baby and. And uh, she was very enthusiastic about yeah. her son. And at that time, as I say, he was very young. But then, of course, she later on came into the picture in the Robertson, playing parts in the Robertson picture. But that was after she had... Well, now, where does this tie up with this wedding anniversary dinner? Well, uh, Hedda Hopper herself doesn't tie up with that. Oh. I think she may have divorced him there. But he was in Chicago and a great friend of Alice Brady. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And so he gave a this dinner. This is the Hopper. DeWolf Hawkins. And he gave a, a dinner for Alice Brady and her husband, Jimmy Crane, and Roy and I on our anniversary, joint oh. anniversary. Oh, yes, I remember that. And I remember what a wonderful entertainer he was. Wasn't he, he though? Stories he could tell, he was just, just went on and on. Fabulous. And we just all sat there and mm. enjoyed it very much. But I still remember Wolf Harper sitting at the head of the of the table and yeah, I remember telling that. these stories. Just occurred to me, too, that, when we were talking well, about Well, that was the connection mm. then. Well, at the end of that particular incident there. Now, I've just forgotten where we were. Now, are you ready to go to Italy, or is that not quite No. Yet? Before Italy came Barthelmas and the Bond Boy with uh, Henry King. Well, now, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm well, a little I'll hazy. Tell you what the tie boy, up there. Um, John Robertson 
was going to do, I think, the bright shawl and we had to go to Cuba. And for some reason or other, you couldn't go. And I think George Folsey, that's when George, uh, George Folsey did it, made I know. the bright shawl and the enchanted cottage. And that's at right. that point, Henry King had gotten in touch with you. And that was for the Inspiration Pictures and probably offered you more money. That was a newer company, a wasn't new it? Company, mm -hmm. A newer company, newer company. And uh, they got in touch with you and uh, offered you, as I remember, a good salary, more than you were getting. And as long as, as you weren't with Robertson just then, yeah. anyhow, you decided to go with Henry King. And the first picture was The Bond Boy. That's right. And uh, then I think you did Fury. The next one was Fury. That was an Eddie Goulding picture. Yes. You wrote it. And it to was see after you had done those two pictures with Henry King that he uh, got in touch with you about going to Italy to do a picture with Lillian Gish. Wanted to know if you'd be interested in going to, to Italy. To, to, mm -hmm. So that's how that came about. That, incidentally, is a little... Uh, to, uh, I could, uh, I don't know how to put it, pay a little tribute to Billy Bitzer. There, who is Lillian's... A uh, cameraman from all the David Griffith pictures, you know. Of course, Lillian didn't know much about me at the time. And um, this White Sister was to be quite a big production. And when she was consulted about a cameraman at first, she thought she might like to have Billy Bitzer, being her old cameraman who understood her, you know. But Billy was uh, sort of failing in health at the time, perhaps. And his domestic life was... Uh, rather unhappy, so that perhaps he had a little too much to drink. And anyhow, he was wasn't reliable. wasn't reliable. But she did to uh, give the phase of uh, oh, how would you put it? Well, Lillian's loyalty to her associates, you know. I believe that she did, as I remember it, go to Billy Bitzer and ask him if he would like to do this picture with her. But she said, Billy, you would have to promise me that you would be completely reliable. And he was on a level enough to say, I don't think I could. Like you couldn't depend on me. Mm -hmm. He admitted it. Mm -hmm. So that eliminated Billy. And uh, I was up for the job, too. But to illustrate Lillian's loyalty, she did offer it yes. to Billy. Yes. But Billy didn't take it anyhow. And, and I uh, went on the White Sister mm -hmm. with Henry King. Oh, I had worked with Henry, yes, of course, on the Barthamus pictures. That's right. And uh, he wanted you. Right? Yeah, Henry wanted me, but uh, Lily just thought she'd make a nice gesture there, which uh, was very nice of her to do. Mm -hmm. And anyhow, the the pictures previous to that were the Bond Boy and this Fury, which we mentioned. Yes. So then we went to Italy, and that's where. Uh, well, uh, yes, of course, that's where Ronald Coleman, Bill Powell, mm -hmm. and Dorothy was also on that picture. Or would no, you no, not Romula. Romula, that's right. There's Lillian, Ronald, Bill Powell. Oh, Charlie there's quite Lee. a cast of characters on that. And that uh, was made in uh, in uh, Rome, of course. And we uh, the whole picture was made there. We took our own laboratory man, a man named Howard Dietz, was it? Yes. And he made our own filters, even. Not Howard he, Dietz, Gus, Gus Dietz. Gustav Dietz. Yes. Gustav because Dietz. there is a Howard Dietz. That's right, Gustav Dietz. And he was quite a, oh, he'd been a technician and a scientist all that. He made all the fillers we used, even, mm -hmm. personally, right there, and developed all the stuff. So that was a bit of pioneering abroad. Well, and wasn't that the first 
the first picture that you used, the panchromatic film was used in? Yes, it was. That was uh, considered uh, an achievement at the time because heretofore it had been thought that panchromatic film, which was just becoming to be more extensively used, was not suitable for interior shooting where artificial lights had to be used, especially mercury vapor lights, the Cooper Hewitts. But anyhow, after some tests and mixing in some Cooper Hewitts with some arc lights, carbon lights, I thought the results were good enough so that we could use it, and it turned out very satisfactorily, too, and we were glad we did. That was the first complete picture that both exteriors and interiors were made entirely on panchromatic film. So and we were there oh, several months on that picture, weren't we? Oh, yes, yes. Did you travel around much on location for that? N not too extensively. It was made within striking distance yeah, of Rome. Yeah, not, not too far. There was a big flood scene in the picture, wasn't there? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was, certainly was. That was made at Tivoli outside of Rome, where they, yes. practically the whole water supply of Rome comes from these beautiful mountains in Tivoli where the mm -hmm. waterfalls are. And, and, of course, the Italians, we had... Uh, uh, fortunately, uh, there was an Italian influential person by the name of Alfredo Bernaggi who, who liked picture people. He's sort of a, an obsession with him. Whenever a picture company came in a location, he immediately made himself known and offered his services, which were invaluable. He was quite influential there and could fix anything that was necessary to fix. To do this flood scene, it meant having control of certain narrow streets that were walled on either side, which most of them were, in a certain uh, part of, uh, in the outskirts of Rome, in around Tivoli there. And uh, we got permission to do all this, so we, we also had a permission to build quite a sizable dam at the, uh, this was all downhill, quite a sizable dam up at the upper end of this thing and controlled by floodgates built breakaway houses all down the streets and so forth. And this was quite a gigantic production number. And it was talked about and planned for some time. But Henry King, who sort of likes to work on the inspiration of the moment, took a <laughs> an inclination to want to do this particular scene when the spirit moved him one day just about lunchtime, either just before or just after lunch. And, and he just felt in the mood and he wanted to do that scene just then. He felt that was the time, the psychological moment to do it. So it involved, we had the cameras all set up and so forth and various vantage points covered. And everyone was there, but the man who understood the proper control of the uh, flood was away at lunch, hadn't returned yet. Well, King didn't want to wait for him. Wasn't there someone else there who, who could work this water supply? Well. Finally, uh, one man volunteered. He said, well, he thought he understood it enough so that he could operate the thing. So we got all set. The signal was given and to this substitute engineer to go ahead and release the floods. He perhaps didn't know as much about it as he thought he did. Anyhow, he turned the wrong valve, and what happened was that the entire water supply, which was contained in this dam, was diverted, not down the street, but through the surrounding farming country of the section up there and as we went home we could see farmers out in their orchards and rowboats and whatnot and a lot of damage was done a lot of suits were brought against the company there was quite a to-do and commotion about this particular uh, 
bit of disaster that we were more or less responsible for. Of course, in the end, we did the scene properly and, and profiting by uh, what we'd found out with this one, the next one went off all right. Then uh, you re did you remain abroad to do uh, Rama or did you No, we came back. Uh, no, almost we, we left um, New York in November, as I remember, in November to, to go to Rome. And we finished the picture and came back about in June, the following June. Yes, that's right. And then um, we left again about June or about August, maybe a month or two, and went to, not very long, we stayed uh, in New York and went back again to do Romola. Mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. Now, it was while you were making Romola that you went out on location, wasn't it? Did or am I bound to have you do something you didn't do? <laughs> no, no, that's right. We in, in Ramla we did. Uh, well, we went to Livorno there. Livorno, yes, that was mm -hmm. quite a distance. Away. And of course, we were out to sea a lot there in pretty rough weather, and uh, the weather well, wasn't so the, good. Even on the White Sister, you know, you went to um, uh, Capri and uh, Sorrento. Of and course we did. Scenes of Vesuvius. Well, of course, Sorrento isn't too far away from well, Rome. Well, I know, it's, it's uh, below, below Naples. It yes, is, uh, yes, that's right, it is. Good half days. Yeah, I had forgotten that. We did spend some time around the Malfi Drive. Yes, all places. Sorrento, I, I don't, don't know whether we had any scenes in the Blue Grotto. I don't believe so. No, I don't no. Which was the picture where you were rushed over there and then uh, didn't have anything to do or very much to do for a couple months? Was that the White Sister? I think it was. You know, we wanted to go on the Mauritania because we knew Captain Rostrum. Uh, and, yeah, they well were, that, uh, and they were in such a hurry to get us. That a, would have been Romola. Yes, that was Romola. Oh, Romola. Mm -hmm. But we, we, we wanted to. We didn't go directly to. to Italy. We went to Calais and Paris, mm -hmm. and then on down to Florence. But for some reason or other, the, the Mauritania, which we wanted to go on, left two days later. But we had to sail yes. on the Olympic or the Berengaria or something. Whatever it was. Uh, but the Mauritania, being so much faster, got in almost as soon as we, we did, did anyhow. It came in just after we did. Yeah. In fact, uh, we saw it coming in mm -hmm. just as we got off the boat. So in that particular th thing, they must have misjudged the urgency of, uh, of getting there in a hurry because uh, we didn't, I, I didn't touch a camera for two months. Costumes had to be made, locations had to be found, uh, all sorts of... Uh, complications arose that we weren't ready to shoot anything, even a test, for a couple of months, so that I could have gone a month later and still been in time. However, it was a pleasant experience. Tell me about the conversation that you had one night about a, a comfortable income for a man. Oh, well, when we were on no location in Livorno, Livorno, which was in connection with uh, Romola, it was a little bit out of season, and the weather was uh, unfavorable, and the hotels were mostly closed. In fact, uh, one was opened especially for the benefit and use of the motion, motion picture personnel that were there. And uh, there wasn't really anything to do after dinner, except sit around and talk for a little bit and turn in. So, so it was the custom to sit around the one fire there in the lounge and talk oh, a little marble bit. marble floors. I remember marble the floors, was like marble. Everything looked cold and was cold, and it was cold outside, penetrating cold. So we just talk out there and uh, get talked out and turn in. What well, nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. So one night, I remember especially, we were sitting around there talking after dinner, and uh, Charlie Lane, an old character actor, 
since departed. And there was uh, Bill Powell. I wonder if Bill was there. I know Ronald Coleman was there. And two or three others. I'm, I, I'm not just certain, but I know Ronald Coleman was there and Charlie Lane was there. This concerns them especially anyway. So uh, just for something to talk about, the topic of conversation, the question came up just quite naturally. How much income would a single man with no obligations have to have coming in per month if it was assured that he would have this income for life? How much could he leave in income? Could he have an enjoyable, secure life on? Well, of course, at that period, prices were not what they are now. And assuming that this was a single man with no obligations and he could spend all this because it was coming in every month, he wasn't. Uh, it wasn't necessary for him to save any of it. Anyhow, after some discussion, the amount $300 was arrived at. So Charlie Lane took this quite seriously, $300. He really took this seriously. So almost immediately, he moved into a less expensive room, and I think he must have cut down on his, uh, his food supply and his clothing. In, in fact, he didn't spend anything that wasn't absolutely essential to spend with the view to uh, accumulating enough so that he could buy annuities that would bring him in this 300 a month. Mm -hmm. And he bent every effort in that direction. Um, in a few years, he accomplished this. He did. He, uh, had, he was a good uh, character actor and, uh, and was usually employed at a good salary. And eventually he did save up enough to buy enough annuities to bring him in the 300 a month. So just that instant he quit work. He said, that's what I want, I've got it. And he said, this is a silly business anyhow, nobody's worth 750 a week, which he was getting, to walk through a few scenes. He said, I'm just fortunate to be able to be in that position to get it, but he says, I'm gonna take advantage of it, and I've got my pile and that's it, and I don't like the business anyhow, and goodbye. So, with the, uh, Hard to get psychology prevalent at that time. Then if they couldn't get him, they wanted him. And if he, so his salary went up. Finally, they were offering him $15 a week to do some. 1500 1500 pardon me, 1500 And no, he wouldn't take it. He was quite satisfied. He, his mind was made up and that was it. So he just would not work anymore. But the, uh, he got his 300 a month, all right, but in the uh, acquiring of it, he had formed such a habit of frugality and, and uh, <laughs> saving that he found himself unable to spend any money. Now that he was free to spend it, he, he got what he was after and could have spent it, but no, he kept right on saving. And in the end, he, he died, and uh, all his effort uh, he didn't really enjoy it, except for the satisfaction of having accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Whatever enjoyment one can get out of that, I don't know. Was it after Ramla or was it later that you found yourself with some money that you uh, had to use up and couldn't take out of the country? Oh, I suppose we could have found ways and means. No, that was later on. That was in the uh, that was later in on, the English period, when we used to go to France and make pictures. Oh, yes, that was... And we couldn't take money out of France. We mm -hmm. didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he had his salary paid to him while he was there. Yeah. And uh, so we thought depositing it in Lloyd's Bank in Nice, where we were working then, uh, being an English bank, well, 
we could take it out, but we found that no, we couldn't. <laughs> you just can't get money out. I suppose money out of the people in the know there were ways and means of finagling this, but we were quite happy and having a good time. So we said, it's only money anyhow. Let's have some fun. How did Oh, we were moved up to Simier to the, one of the to Monte Carlo. most charming hotels there. Went to Monte Carlo and went to dances and played tennis and just lived it up, you know. Yes. <laughs> Had a swell time. Never regretted it. <laughs> well, then I guess after Rama, you did come back to this country then and came do more Bartholomew's pictures, like. Uh, well, we came back to this country and uh, we came back and to New York. And new yeah, back to New York. Well, let me see. That well, was... Then you went back with Robertson again. Oh, yes, Bartholomew. because Henry King came yes. on out here to the coast, yes, mm -hmm. and he wanted me to do something here. Yes. With, uh, was it Warner Brothers? Warner Brothers. But he wanted me to hang around for six months until he got started, and I well, had offers in the meantime and didn't, and he was a little bit provoked with me, and I've never been with King since, although I don't think he ever held it against me. Mm -hmm. But he... Uh, he did uh, offer me this thing, but wasn't ready to do, and he was, uh, well, it was you actually still under several... contract to Inspiration Pictures. Yeah, I know. And Henry had, uh, I think, had left them then. But well, the thing is that you were still under contract yeah. to them, and they wanted to uh, do these, uh, they still had Robertson under contract. You had worked with Robertson That's so right, much, I guess that was it. But they thought, mm -hmm. well, here's a natural tie-up. Robertson mm -hmm. wanted Roy, Roy liked to work with him. Yes. And you were both under contract. And Henry, had, Henry had other irons in the fire by that time Henry anyway. Mm -hmm. So that that's how that came about. Then you started that's true. with Robertson and Dick Bartholomew was under contract too. Yeah. So mm -hmm. then you started a series of, of um of Well, with we good classmates down at West classmates. Point. Classmates. Fury with the... Uh, no. Uh, no, Fury was... Soulfire. Uh, Soulfire. And New Toys. And New Toys. Bessie Love was on New that. Toys. And uh, Mary Hay. Um, yes, Mary Hay. Mary, yes, Mary Hay. She was, was on some of those. That one. And uh, I think another picture with him wasn't with Dorothy McHale played in called Shore Leave. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was a good yes. one. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Shore Leave. Right. Dorothy McHale was in it. Mm -hmm. Now, that may have been Henry King. I'm not sure. I think... I think that was Henry King, period. Well, those anyhow, those the, points are... I know you did no, make I can't be, I know be he made that about. Dorothy McHale. Mm-hmm. Now, now are we ready for the uh, the big trip to England? I think... I think posterity will be completely bored by now with my experiences. They'll love it. <laughs> right well, if you want more, let me see if I can collect my, reorganize my thoughts here. Where were we? We're, we're ready to go to England now. Do you uh, know Gwynn? England with uh, Dorothy Gish. Nell Gwynn. Oh, all right. Uh, Dorothy Gish somehow was approached by a, an independent company in England to do a picture, Nell Gwynn. J.D. Williams. J.D. Williams, who was a, yes. Well, having worked with Dorothy and Lillian on these Italian pictures, I didn't know this at the time, but Dorothy had agreed to go if I could go as her cameraman. So she, I was approached to do this picture, and by that time, there's no reason why I couldn't, and I liked traveling abroad then, and hadn't been to, uh, or had been to England, knew something about it, which uh, favored my chances of, of going in. I knew something about it, it was not green there. So anyhow, as it ended up, I went to do Nell Gwynn, and that was directed by Herbert Wilcox, 
who was one of the leading British directors at the time, and a very pleasant, likable person. And we got along fine. And we did Nell Gwynn. It was quite a good picture. Photographically, one of my best, I think. And uh, it was so good that when it was over and we came back to New York again, they, this company, independent company in England, which was organized for the purpose of doing this one picture, decided to go ahead on a more permanent basis, I think. Mm -hmm. Made British International, International. Yes, that's right. So then I was put under contract and went back again once more with this outfit, the Wilcoxes. And that's when some pictures came in with old Jack Buchanan and Will Rogers and uh, Nelson Keyes and, uh, and Dorothy was in most of them, wasn't she? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. And Elisa Landy and uh, oh, there's a lot of uh, mixed talent of British and American and, and Madame Pompadour. That was the Madame Pompadour was the first did. picture in the new British International Studios at Elstree. Yeah. Now tell me about the fog and the fog machine. One of the difficulties photographically in working in London during the fall and winter months is was fog, which is by reputation, as we all know, very prevalent and at times so dense that you simply cannot get home. You just have to stop wherever you are, and that's it. You couldn't see a foot and a half in either direction. So uh, this does seep into the studios, which makes lighting difficult because any spotlight or intense light beam will show up in the fog. So to make it feasible for shooting, and all companies have worked in London were up against the same problem there. So some inventively minded uh, scientific uh, person concocted or designed or got together a huge fog machine. It was about as big as an ordinary room. And that was installed in the famous player's studio at, uh, out at Islington. Well, that must have been before that. But anyhow, uh, there, there were two or three of them in use in London. And when we had to work in these particular studios, that fog machine did help. And of course, those were silent pictures and the noise it made mm -hmm. didn't interfere. It would have been impossible with the sound production. But as far as... Uh, silent movies were concerned, it was a big help because it did eliminate enough of the fog so that your light beams didn't show in the air. And of course, in the hazy atmosphere, like fog would do any backlighting, you know, just blurs out everything, mm -hmm. unless the atmosphere is clear. So that was one of the things we had to contend with there, but the fog machine helped on that. Now, while you were working for Wilcox, you got into the habit of coming in late. Well... It wasn't so much of a habit as a, as a development, really, an evolution of the... Of course, the, at that time, there weren't too much stress. It was not paid on punctuality and in, in, in any uh, appointment in London. If you ordered a, a car for 10 o'clock in the morning, if it got there at 11, that was considered to be on time. So anyhow, the call was, uh, was shooting at 9 o'clock. But nothing ever happened. People stood around talking, and there wasn't anything that occurred. So you just naturally got in the habit of, uh, of coming a little late, not having it uh, taken too seriously if you found yourself detained or a little bit late. So a careless habit would develop quite naturally without any in intention. And I found myself coming in at 9.15, 9.30, but one morning I way overdid it. It was a 9 o'clock call and I came in at 11. And it happened to be a very... Uh, heavy and busy day. We had uh, perhaps 200 extras and a huge set which had to be lighted and it was a... I really should have been there before, but anyhow, I came in at 11. 
feeling very guilty and very much ashamed of myself, but nevertheless, that's what happened. And uh, to make it worse, nobody reprimanded me or bawled me out for this. Uh, everybody was pleasant. Wilcox, the director, was very good morning, very pleasant, just as if I was right on time or even ahead of time. And the nicer they were, the worse I felt, naturally. So I felt, well, I should apologize or make some excuse about this. So finally I found Wilcox by himself for a moment. I took that occasion to go over and speak my piece. Uh, I said, gee, Mr. Wilcox, I said, I am awfully late this morning and I'm very sorry about it. And I said, as a matter of fact, I have no excuse. I'm just plain late. I said, I, I hope it didn't inconvenience you or hold things up too much. He looked at me kind of astonished and slapped me on the back. He said, Roy, he said, uh, he said, I don't live my life by a time clock, and I don't expect anyone else to. Go out and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> well, Those that were the was... days when they used to stop for tea. Oh, always stop for tea. Nobody At would work. They had half to. half an hour, 40 minutes, or an hour for tea Oh, that's every an institution, afternoon. of course. If you the didn't... whole crew, I mean, everybody. Yeah, they the couldn't have had any work out of any of the natives if they didn't stop for tea. That was a must. Strictly observed. While you were in England, you made a film called Tiptoes with Dorothy Gish and Will Rogers. And sometimes on the way to the studio, Will used to use you as a guinea pig. Well, that was rather interesting. Just prior to that, though, there was Will Rogers, Dorothy Gish, and the British comedian of the moment, the leading one, a very funny man named Nelson Keyes. And these three people, principals, when you got them together, there was a riot. It was almost impossibility to get them all in front of the camera at one time. They were so busy cracking jokes and kidding each other and pulling wisecracks. It was really a problem. So the, the whole affair was just a, a comedy from start to finish, in and, in and off the stage. And uh, at that time, most of us lived in London or near there, but the studio was out at Elsie, which was some distance. And the company was in the habit of sending a limousine to pick up the various uh, principals and myself, the cameraman. So um, we lived a little closer to Elstree, so we were the last ones picked up. So the limousine was usually stopped for Will Rogers and Nelson Keys. And then they would arrive at our place and, uh, and uh, pick me up. Will Rogers already in the car. Sometimes if they were early, they'd all come in and have some coffee with us. We'd chat a little bit and go on out the studio. So, um, Will was in the, he always had the morning paper, and he'd sit there and read out loud uh, the headlines and the first paragraph and things pertaining to important events at the time, and he'd make some comment verbally and audibly, and uh, he would look at us to see what reaction we got. If we laughed or seemed to appreciate or be interested in his comment, well, he'd make a note of that. He used us as sort of a trial audience, guinea pigs, you know. Well, he was still writing his column then it, for of course the he, newspaper. That, that's right. The that's American why he did papers. this. That's why he, he did this. He cabled them. So uh, he, he uh, used us, as, as you expressed it, for guinea pigs, and if we reacted favorably, he'd use that in his column the next day. Oh, in regard to Will Rogers, this is just, in passing, it's rather an, in an interesting point in connection with Will Rogers. We knew in New York an old friend of ours, the name of uh, Regan, Mrs. Regan. 
and she was at that time employed by a greeting card company. It might have been Hallmark, I don't know, but one of the leading ones at the time. But they wanted to uh, incorporate these little daily sayings of Will Rogers on greeting cards, especially Christmas. They wanted to use a series of these for greeting cards. So they sent this Mrs. Regan. She, she didn't know Will Rogers, but she was sent to Europe to contact Will Rogers and get his permission to use these things that he had written on greeting cards. And she had with her a signed and certified check for $10,000, which she would turn over to Will Rogers just for permission to use these sayings. Mm -hmm. She, being an old friend of ours, looked me up first to introduce her to Will Rogers in England. So I went to Will first and explained what this was all about. I said, I don't know anything about the proposition, but I can vouch for the reliability of this Mrs. Regan, who was the one sent over to see you. And uh, I'm just going to introduce her to you with your permission. And all I have to say about it is that she herself is reliable and any proposition she wants to make, you can bank on the authenticity of it. So he said, well, I'll see her. So they got together and she made the proposition which she had to relay from her company with the greeting card company and Will turned it down. He said, no, he said, that wouldn't be quite right. He said, uh, I didn't write those things with a view to having them used on greeting cards, and in my opinion, they are not quite suitable. I would have to revise them, and I haven't time to do that. And uh, he said, so as they are, I would not give you permission to use them. But she said, well, Mr. Rogers, here's a check for $10,000. It's a simple matter. All you got to do is say yes. I know, but it's not right. I will have to refuse it. Sorry. And another thing he said, he said, after all, I've already been paid for those. Oh, he yes, said, I, that's I right. just wouldn't accept money twice for the same thing. That's just a little incident showing the sterling character the of the man. Of After you finished a film called Hunting Tower with Harry Lauder, there was a surprise for you. Oh, you've no idea. <laughs> that was one of my, one of the most amazing experiences. Uh, Harry Lauder, of course, had a reputation being a Scotch entertainer being very close with his uh, favors, especially his money. And it was a custom quite often in those days to, after the picture, the star would pre present uh, certain members of the staff with a little uh, remembrance, perhaps a pair of cufflinks or a check or something or other. That was usually done. And after this, uh, the conclusion of this picture was Sir High Lauder, I was the recipient of a munificent gift, an orange. I was presented <laughs> with an orange, a good orange, too, <laughs> by Sir Harry Lauder. I cherished that uh, greatly. In 19, toward the end of 1927 in England, you finished a film called Confetti with Jack Buchanan. Mm -hmm. And uh, during the making of this, there was an incident in, um, involving an eclair camera that uh, brought Brings oh. Margie back into the picture. Oh, that was funny. You'll have to fill, fill me in on the details of this, but here's... They wanted to use a Mitchell or a Bell and Howe, which uh, wasn't one available. We would have had to get one from the United States and pay duty. And, of course, it was quite high, and uh, quite naturally they wanted to save any money where they could, so they asked me if I was familiar with a French camera known as the Eclair camera. I had seen seen them, I guess. I didn't know anything about them. I said, no, really, I'm not. 
And I said, I wouldn't like to use one without being familiar with it or knowing more about it. They said, well, we propose to send you over to Paris to the company that makes them and have a look at them and see what you think. And if you can use one, it would save us some money. So I said, well, all right. So I went over to look at this uh, French camera, uh, Claire, and was quite taken with it. I liked it. And I ordered some lenses and all the equipment and so forth, and we were all set to use that, but I hadn't actually tried it out. More or less of a salesman's demonstration in the, in the uh, company's office. So eventually the camera was delivered and sent up to my room at the hotel where we were staying. And to get familiar with it, I set it up on the tripod and put it through its paces or attempted to, and I got stuck. Something I couldn't figure out about how to interchange lenses or how to make the viewfinder come into place or even how to start. There was some trick to it. And I read the instructions which came with it and tried everything and just practically gave up and was really in a, in a rather uh, nervous mood about the thing when Marjorie came in. I said, I'm really in trouble here. Look at this new camera and I'm supposed to start out and use this in a day or two and I'll be darned if I can figure out how the thing works. She took a look at it, and in five minutes, had solved the difficulty, whatever it was, I've quite forgotten, but saved the day. Do you remember that? <laughs> I'm a mechanic, too. <laughs> I know. Would well, you remember what happened? I vaguely remember that. I don't know what it was. I don't either. I'm usually good at... But I know that whatever it was, you really... Solving mechanical difficulties. Uh, came to the rescue in a big way. <laughs> Roy, I think this is a fascinating document. What's that? Which... <clears throat> these two sheets that you made up at the time that you were working on a picture with Mary Nolan. Oh, gee. I wish you'd explain on the tape about this, and then would you read them so that they can be recorded? Well, I'll attempt to. Let's see. This is dated June 13, 1930. I'll have to see if I can think of what chain of events brought this into existence. Oh, well, of course, that was a... Uh, for some reason or other, the, the picture and several pictures of, of that period, time and place, for some reason or other, which I don't know, were considered to be always behind schedule and rather slow. And it was customary to blame it always on the camera department or the cameraman. The director would say, no matter if he was deliberately at fault, he would always blame the cameraman. He said, well, he said, I, I can't do anything. The cameraman takes all day to light the scene. What can I do? I can't shoot it until he gets done lighting. Anyhow, the cameraman was the recipient of a lot of undeserved blame, and I got sore about it one day, and so I thought I'd put the thing down in black and white. So I very carefully, with whoever was my assistant, a stopwatch and a notebook, wrote down everything that happened and the time it took, and the things that were related in any way to the lighting of the set or the camera work, which could be legitimately charged to the camera department. I was quite honest in putting that down. So in this one particular day, here's the thing that you just asked me to read. Here's the way it goes. Record of time consumed by camera department from 10.30 a.m. Before this time, three shots had been taken. Evidently, I didn't get to uh, recording that. 10.30 to 10.50, that's 20 minutes. Painting wall in hallway, no, putting wall in hallway, painting and dressing the set. Now, obviously, that can't be charged to the camera department. 10.50, director gives setup for two cameras, two cameramen. He tells the cameraman what shots he wants. That's 11.50. Now, 11.50, or 10.50, rather, to 11.05, that's 15 minutes. This is in red ink, which means charge the camera department. Setting up, focusing cameras, giving lighting instructions to electricians, 15 minutes. Now, 
What occurs there, you see, the cameraman doesn't actually set the lights. He tells the, the head electrician where he wants the lights. Now, the cameraman ta may take two minutes to tell this to an electrician, but it may take the electrical department two hours to do it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you can't say that's the cameraman's fault. Anyhow, 15 minutes. 11.15, rough lighting, finished by electricians. They've got them roughly in place. Then 11.15 to 12 o'clock, rehearsing. There's 45 minutes that the cast rehearses. That's not chargeable to the camera department. 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock, lunch, that's of course legitimate. 1.12 to 1.18, rehearsing. Uh, 1.18 to 1.25, rehearsal for cameras. Now they've had their, their last rehearsal, they've got the dramatics and the, uh, me the mechanics of the action all determined. But, but that necessitates a little readjustment by the camera department. We'll alter a light here because you didn't know this legally was going to be here. Now he's going to be here. So you have to readjust your lighting a little bit. Adjustment of light, seven minutes. That's all it took to do that. 125 to 2.05, discussion as to whether Miss Nolan had her sleeves up or down in preceding scene. That's where the script girl comes in, of course. They've forgotten what she wore, how she had it. Now, 2.05 to 2.43, shooting the scene. That's everybody's concern there. 2.43 to 2.50, making still pictures with the still man. Uh, 2.50 to 3.04, lining up, lighting, and shooting an insert. Oh, handwriting or some insert. 3.04 to 3.06, lining up and lighting another insert. Two minutes, that took. 3.06 to 3.14, waiting for artists to hold card for insert. There's eight minutes that had to be used um, they couldn't find the artist. They want this particular hand to hold the card. So we had to wait till he got there. Eight minutes. Shooting two inserts. 322, director gives next setup. 322 to 325, three minutes to set up the camera, focus, and give lighting instructions. Three minutes. Um, 325 to 355, discussing scene, putting water in a tub, sawing legs off a stool which was too high, and rehearsing. Uh, 355 to 358, adjusting lights for the final shooting, three minutes. 358 to 405, nothing in particular, conversation. 405 to 420, actually shooting the scene. Note, time in red ink, 44 minutes, is the actual time consumed by the camera department exclusive of shooting and reloading from 10.30 a.m. to 4.20 p.m. Total time, 44 minutes. I turned into this, turned this into the to the studio manager's office and heard nothing more about the camera department being slow. Because that was pretty, pretty well down black and white there. Thank you so very, very much. Oh, you're Roy very more than welcome. <laughs> it was really a pleasure. It has refreshed my own mind. Oh, yes, you know. You it's made me conscious of things that have occurred during the years that I had completely forgotten, but your prompting and questioning has stimulated a chain of memory which does recall certain things, you know. And it, it isn't easy to do, because at the time you considered them of no importance, so consequently you haven't made any particular mental note of the uh, chronology or the period or later importance of the situation, so you just don't remember it. Well, thank you again, Roy. Oh, it's a pleasure. A beautiful record. It's a pleasure. I hope it does some good somewhere, or proves of interest. <laughs>